Hello everyone and welcome to At The Cap Table, the exciting new series dedicated to hearing from top European female investors who are taking the VC industry by storm. Our next guest is the brilliant Carmen Alfonso Rico, the self-described VC turned angel at Cocoa Ventures. Having previously been at Consumer Fund Felix, Series A Fund Blossom, as well as Spanish HQ Semi Pata, Carmen is responsible for being the first investor into companies such as Hopin and SideQuest VR. Now, Carmen is leading the charge at Cocoa Ventures, an angel fund providing the first check for founders across Europe. Investing 250 to 500K, Cocoa supports founders as their in-house VC, helping them hack the system with independent and unfiltered investment insights. In today's episode, we're discussing everything from how Carmen actually helps her founders hack the system to fund economics. Bear with me on that fund economics point. It's one of the most interesting and overlooked parts of being a great VC and fund manager. And for Carmen, it's led to some pretty contrarian views on how she puts her portfolio together. And of course, I couldn't resist asking the woman behind Cocoa Ventures what her favorite chocolate is. So if you want the hottest tip in town, the best chocolate, then listen all the way to the end. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Tactic is the leading forecasting and scenario planning software for venture capital funds. Tactic combines portfolio construction, portfolio management, forecasting, and reporting into a unified platform. Investors are empowered with data-driven insights on fund strategy, reserve allocation, exit planning, and fund performance. Tactic was built using quantitative techniques researched from hundreds of data-driven fund managers and is trusted by over 250 funds globally today. Tactic is a proud sponsor of the first season of the At The Cap Table podcast series. If you'd like to learn more, please check out tactic.io. T-A-C-T-Y-C dot I-O. Hey, Carmen. Um, Firstly, thank you so much for joining me today on the pod. Uh, Now you're joining us from your London office from Cocoa Ventures HQ, am I right? Yes, Cocoa HQ. (laughs) So fun, so fun. And I've just been told as well that there is a stack load of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory books in the background, which is super cool and super exciting. Yeah, exactly. Over there, this is full of like chocolate theme related things from books to actual show you like lots of chocolate that we received today. Like, Love it. Absolutely love it. This is my my dream place to work as a, as a re- renowned chocoholic. Um, so for our listeners, can you just fill us in on your journey to how you got to where you are today? Because you've actually approached this whole VC angel thing in a slightly backwards way. So unlike others who are angels first, and then they build to grow their own VC firms, you've slightly done this reverse engineered it so we'd love well, to hear you on how backwards. you exactly and also another straight i think like if there's something i wish somebody would have told me when i left uni is that it was not going to be a straight line it was going to be more like that and then backwards and then being totally i actually um i'll keep it short because but but basically i started my career in politics actually uh, in oh. spain so i did a couple of years of politics i realized I, I was like in a cabinet of, of a person of a region in Spain. And I realized that it was a great job probably to end your career if you love politics, uh, because you do have an impact and, and you do see a lot and you can really also help people. But the reality is that 
it's not a great place to start your career probably because um, they don't have in Spain uh, structures to manage talent. So the only thing I was learning was how to be a politician. I saw my friends who were in banking and in consulting and they were learning to think critically and getting exposure to projects and, and problems that I wasn't getting exposure to. And so I decided I was going to go serve my time, move to London, join Morgan Stanley. So the three years of investment banking served my time <laughs> properly. <laughs> that was like a real military job. Though I must say, people when when people hear I was at Morgan Stanley for three years, they feel sorry for me. I loved it. Like you work with tons of super young, driven people. It's probably not something to do for me for the rest of my life, but it was fantastic three years. Learned a lot. Lots of soft skills that have been very, very helpful throughout my career. But there was a point I always wanted to be a founder, basically. And the paradox is I joined VC because I wanted to be a founder. I thought it would make me a better founder. And the situation is I come from a family of entrepreneurs, like four generations. They have been what we used to call business men and business women. As my dad says, everything that you can touch, so no tech. But I always thought I would do something in tech because I like to be at this forefront. I have a very acute sense of opportunity cost. So I don't like to be in industries that I feel are falling behind. And tech is therefore like, you know, at a growth and forefront. But I had a problem, which was I was not technical. Because my parents focused a lot on languages, but not on actually coding, which now this day bites me a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I think everyone that is non-technical in VC is always like, I wish I could code. I, it's just like this in a build, like I have all these ideas, I can't build anything. And so I have so much respect for those who can build it. But I, and, and then the reality is also, I didn't have a network because I had a network in banking, but not in tech. And, mm-hmm. and so I thought, well, look, VC is this perfect combination of finance, which right now, like I, I get, and it's in tech and it's going to give me these incredible like muscle of what makes companies succeed and fail because I'm going to see so many little did I know it takes 10 years you know I thought two years I'm going to get the full playbook Um, and then I thought and this was correct it would allow me to build a network in tech and then I could start a company after and so I was very lucky that Antoine at Felix Capital gave me my first chance ever in venture when they were launching Felix I'm forever grateful uh, for that chance because it was the beginning of everything and Joining VC to be a better founder, I actually did launch my company eventually just to realize that I missed investing a lot. Like that was a big aha moment is that I bootstrapped it from my living room uh, here in London. And I think two key learnings that have informed my career and my investment thesis. One is I'm an investor at heart. Like I was talking to founders about different problems and learning like about lots of things. At the end, knowing a little about a lot, I miss that and I live off that. It's what drives me every day. And the other thing was I actually wasn't passionate about the problem. I over-optimized for being a founder and found a problem that made sense. Basically, we launched a direct-to-consumer brand, so we're inspired by Felix thesis, but a direct-to-consumer brand for pregnant women because we wanted to empower women to leave maternity their own way. Reality, though, is I had a lot of friends who were having babies, but I didn't even have a boyfriend. Like, pregnancy was not a problem or a, or even, like, an opportunity in my life at any point near or close. And also, I didn't care about fashion. And so, suddenly, I found myself so, like, 
in enjoying the process of building something. But when it got very operational, I, I just didn't have the passion to get the resilience. And so now that's why I look for founders who are obsessed because yeah, have that founder problem fit. Like, and, and I just think like, yeah, I wasn't passionate enough and then it gets too hard. And so I joined, I went back into investing and this was like, I haven't looked back. I know it is what I want to do forever. And then how did I go once that was venture? Great. And now how do I then twist it and go from being a VC to being an angel is because summer 2019, I made my first angel investment complete serendipity a business angel called Andrew White asked me to meet a founder and tell him what I thought mm-hmm. this founder was Johnny from Hoppin I met Johnny when he was raising his pre-seed I couldn't invest from the fund I was a partner I was a partner in a Spanish seed fund I couldn't invest because they didn't do pre-launch Johnny was pre-launch and I wanted to help him and so I helped him doing what I knew how to do which now looking back is very obviously I help him doing what a VC knows how to do. But back then I was like, just figuring out, we always joke, if I would have known how to cook, I would have made him dinner. (laughs) There's the one thing I don't know how to cook. Like I I feed people, but not on my like credit. But I knew what investors he had to meet. So I put together 100% of Hopkins pre-seed cap table, every single investor from Seacom to my family, I introduced him. I know how to put together a deck, review his term sheet, like actual build the actual Excel spreadsheet of the cap table. All these things that for VCs are bread and butter, it was my day job, but for a founder not. And what I realized, and this was the biggest aha moment, was that I was building a very strong relationship of trust with him. Like I was becoming sort of a trusted confidant for him. And I figured in my mind it had to do with the fact that on one side I was tiny in his captive, like I was literally insignificant. But on the other, I knew all the tricks of VCs. And I knew, not tricks, like ways of working, ways of thinking. And I also knew everybody because I was one of them. And I could help him bridge the gap from the position of an angel, right? Back then, I didn't think of it as a fund. I just thought I loved it. And so I started to do lots of angel investments. I put together a small vehicle on AngelList to do 50K dollar checks into pre-seed companies in Europe. At the same time, I was a partner in a series A fund called Blossom. And it was, I did around 20 angel investments. And it's when I realized that there was actually a need and an opportunity for a VC turned angel. So to take the VC skills, but invest from an angel position, become the in-house VC for the founder. And that's Cocoa. We invest the 50 to 500K checks, depending on the size of the round. But whole point, no friction allocation, and we don't compete, we collaborate. We come in a small, small in the cap table so that we can be neutral, independent, agnostic, like an angel. But to that angel check and angel stake, bring our VC network and our expertise, because we've been VCs, become the in-house VC for the founder. So that's the journey. We love to hear it. Um, now, you mentioned there that Cocoa Ventures is like the first Czech angel fund, and you're pretty generalist, right? Completely agnostic, as you just mentioned. But I've also heard you describe your investment thesis before as founders, which is sounds actually stupidly broad, but I know that there's a ton more behind that. So maybe you can clarify what you mean here. Maybe talk us through, you know, when you saw Johnny, what was it about him that was so exciting that you just wanted to get on board? What's the most notab- noticeable things about these individuals when you invest they're obsessed they're completely obsessed johnny was obsessed like um so i'll tell you how i've because i've refi- i've been able to verbalize and put in a much more concise way my my thesis <laughs> since, since happened and like a, a quite a few years have have gone by but basically when i say that i that founders are my investment thesis and i will specify what actually that looks like but it's also because i invest at pre-seed 
right? And and see that it's like super early. And I invest on a 10 to 12 year time horizon. And so I am very aware and very careful to make sure I check on myself and my own limitations, right? And at the end of the day, if you think about it, when you're at pre-seed seed, when you look at the elements that are key for conviction building in an investment, the one that you have more information about is the founders. The markets, yes, you, you can check whether there's something, and I do structural impediment to build a big business because it's not big, but the reality is it's going to change and the best companies create markets and, and our imagination in how that can play out is quite limited, right? And then go to market, a business that is going to change a trillion times before they actually go live. And so I try to make sure that I actually, people think it's like emotional decision to back the founders. It's actually the most rational decision when you're at pre-seed because it's the, the one thing you have in front of you where you have most more information. So if you look at like my investment thesis is I back killers with a heart and I'll explain what a killer with a heart is. Going after very big business pain points because they need to be business pain points and they need to be big in markets where there's no structural impediment to build a big business. Because it is true that there are markets or models where there's a structural impediment. Like there are unit economics that don't work. It doesn't matter like what you do, they're not going to work. Or there are markets where it's so competitive that there's going to be a lot of destruction of value. So there are certain things that are structural. But if there's nothing structural and you've got killers with a heart and you've got a big business pain point, I'm very happy to take a step back and be like, these killers are going to figure something out in this market, right? And that has taken me to invest in areas like steel. Like one of Cocoa's most exciting companies is AI applied to steel making. If I would have done top down, whether I thought steel making was an interesting market, I don't think I would have landed there, right? And I met Thomas and I was blown away. I was like, I'll follow you to the end of the world. Like, you know, and 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 that like has taken me to discover an incredible market. And so I try to just like um, kind of be mindful of what I can assess and cannot assess and be very hands off in that that I cannot assess. Now, what's the key here? What's a killer with a heart? Like a killer with a heart to me is a person who is obsessed. And you have to be because launching a company is irrational. Like you should say that. Like, I think that it is the hardest thing that you as a person are going to do, like voluntarily and proactively decide to do. And it's such a long commitment and it's going to get so hard. Even if it goes great, it's going to get so hard that unless you have an irrational reason to build this company and solve the problem that you want to solve, you're going it, to, it's impossible. You can't endure that. And so that's one. The other one is an ambition that is borderline naive, but that is not delusional. And that's a fine line. <laughs> you know, it's like the, to me, how I measure that fine line is speed of learning and speed of execution. Because at the end of the day, what I want is founders who don't necessarily know all the challenges that lie ahead of them, because if they were to know, they might not do it. But that when these challenges come, because they are going to come, they have the skills to overcome them. And speed of learning and speed of execution is a key metric for that. And then third, and this is a personal thing of me, of myself, like they need to have a lot of clarity of mind, of clarity of vision. I think that I look for founders who understand the market inside out. Like, and 
they cannot have clarity on what's going to happen, that's for sure. But they need to have a deep understanding of the dynamics of the market they're selling into, of the problem, of the user they're selling into. Because if not, like, I think that they're just like, going to spend too much time catching up on that. And especially in a market like today where money has a cost and it's more limited, I think that you can't afford that, right? And and so that's basically a killer with a heart. And if you look at Cocoa's um, a portfolio, you've got like, you know, yeah, Thomas who will explain to you, let's start by the end, clarity of mind, clarity of vision. Thomas can explain to you, and he's a PhD in physics and AI, and he can explain to you what is the problem in steel making, comparing it to cake baking. And you get it in like two minutes. That is the level of understanding you need to have to be able to, to somebody who knows nothing about steel, make me feel the pain is insane. You've got Dave from eventstore.com, who's like a database for events um, sourcing. In a, He quit his job because he was a CTO in a big company, he came across event store as a solution. It was an open source project. He decided the world had to see his product and he quit his job and joined event store to build event story. Right? He's obsessed, like completely obsessed. And if you think then the, the point around ambition, like you speak to like, for example, Santi from Papaya, who's like basically building an operating system for the electric vehicle industry, right? To manage it. Like he's, there's no obstacle big enough. Like he's going to be the operating system for EVs. And you speak to him and you realize this guy's not going to stop. Like he's just, and trust me, there have been challenges that we couldn't even foresee a year and a half ago. He's not going to stop, right? And and so I think like these characters, like or Orla to talk because we have amazing like female characters. Orla, like, you know, like, She's like a powerhouse that went through VR and with like VR winters, several VR winters. And she's managed to like raise rounds, like incredible rounds backed by Google Ventures. Like they, there's nothing that they, they just believe in their product and in their solution so much that they're just not going to stop. And I think that that is key. Well, it sounds like you also work in a similar way, right? You never want to stop hustling for your founders. So I would love to know from your side, what is the difference between operating as a normal angel and operating as an angel fund? And um, so what are you delivering that maybe regular business angels just aren't? So that's an amazing question. And actually, I'm a geek of fund economics. So I'm going to answer your question on value, Adam, and I'm also going to ask uh, answer the question around how does the model work differently for a physical angel and a fund angel, and an angel fund? Because I think it's important for founders to understand so that they can know what is the right source of capital for them. When we look at sources of capital, we need to separate almost like between physical person and fund, and then VC fund and angel fund. That is the, because sometimes people confuse angel fund, angel. And and so the reality is if I'm a physical person versus a fund, what changes is how I look at returns. Mm-hmm. So if I am Carmen, physical individual, and I invest 10K in a company, I'm going to look at the returns as a multiple of that 10K, generally. If I am a fund, I'm going to look for a fund returner. So I'm going to look at the, my investment as a multiple of the full fund size. So if I invest 100K into a company, I'm not going to look at it as a multiple of this 100K. Of course, I'll do the math, but like it's not the driver. The driver is whether it returns my full fund. So that's one. And that's why sometimes funds to- tell founders like, oh, but this is not big enough. 
When we say this is not big enough, it doesn't mean your business cannot be built big enough. It doesn't mean you cannot build an amazing business that changes your family's life for generations. It means that I can't see a fun return. Because, and this brings me to the point, if you think about it, if let's call a VC fund that is 100 million, if they need a fund returner, they need to believe that they're going to make 100 million out of your company. If they are going to own 10% at exit, you need to be a $1 billion company. That's the math that they're doing. Whereas if I am an angel and I make 10x on a 10k check, I'm the good deal. Incredible. Like invest 10k, exit at 100k, the bomb. I'm a fund that invest 1 million, exit at 10 million. I've done 10x, but I wanted 100. Right. So that is, and this goes again to the point on the sources of capital. Like sometimes you want to make sure at the beginning, especially if the size of the upside is a question, that you get individual angels because the way they look at returns is means they're going to be less concerned about that size of the outcome initially. And then many times afterwards, there is more clarity on the fact that this was actually indeed a big upside potential, and then VC money will come or fund money will come. Now, what's the difference between, and that is also why I can operate differently to VCs, what is the difference between an angel fund and a VC fund? The main difference is the size, which means it impacts the percentage, the ownership stake they need. Each needs. So an angel fund, let's call it, is going to be small versus a VC fund that's going to be bigger. Now, we did the math earlier, if I want a fund returner, and I'm a 100 million fund, and I'm going to own 10% at exit, I need a company to be a $1 billion company. Fine. If I'm this same 100 million fund, and I have 1% at exit, I need a company to be a $10 billion company for me to make 100 million. What is more likely, that a company is a $1 billion company or a $10 billion company? It's a $1 billion company, right? So I can't afford having 1% at exit because it decreases the likelihood of a company being a fund returner for me, the same company. Now look at an angel fund. Let's say I'm a $10 million fund. If I have a 1% at exit, I need a company to be a $1 billion company to be a fund returner. So guess what? I can afford having 1% at exit because the likelihood of a company being a fund returner is higher because my fund size is smaller. It's a point that's super overlooked, right? A lot of the time. Totally, totally. At the end of the day, you need to think funds Angel funds or VC funds, most of them are going to think in terms of fund returner. What is, how do you calculate a fund returner? You divide size of the fund divided by the stake, ownership stake. And that tells you how much, if you're a 500 million fund and you own 10%, a company needs to be a $5 billion company for you to make 500 million. If you have 500 million and you own 1%, a company needs to be $50 billion. That's a very challenging outcome to see. So the larger a fund, the more stake they need. This is why founders, many times funds, tell you they need a minimum 15% and they need a minimum 10%. It's because otherwise their economics don't work, right? And when you're an angel fund and you're small, because the size is small, the stake you need is also much less. So you can be much more flexible. And this is Cocoa's whole thesis. It's like, we don't give a damn about stake. Because if I don't give a damn about stake, I can do two things. I can collaborate with other funds, not compete, because it's never going to be URI. Because if you need 15% and I need 15%, it's going to be URI. If you need 15% and I don't need anything, we can be both of us together. One. And the other one, it allows me to be completely aligned in interest with founders. Because I can help founders optimize for valuation in a round where I'm going to invest. Because stake is not critical for me. And I can help founders optimize, because I don't follow on, I can help founders optimize their next 
evaluation because they hit, they take is the hit. So that's the key. And in how I operate versus ABC, the key is that I don't give a damn about stake. And that allows me to collaborate with other funds, not compete, and it allows me to be neutral, independent, in-house VC for fund. Now, what is my difference between an angel, physical angel? The main difference is that, and to your point on my weird journey backwards, most angels haven't been VCs before. It's a very rare journey to go from VC, to go basically from bigger to smaller. So angels add a lot of value on what they know. So many have been CTOs. I can't help a company build a tech team because I've never built one. So I will stay away from that. They help with product, you know, they help with sales, business dev, go to market motion. But if they haven't been VCs, they can't be the in-house VC for founders. So that's the key to Cocoa's value prop is like, I can help founders navigate everything VC, think like a VC basically, but from the position of an angel because I don't care about stake. It's a super unique approach, right? Would love to know about some of your LPs. So who is putting money into your fund? And, you know, how are they getting comfortable with this more contrarian view of the world? I think that's a phenomenal question because actually this thing that I said, I don't give a damn about stake. By the way, I'm a firm believer that it should be us pitching to founders, not the other way around. And so everybody who's been in touch with Cocoa knows that we have a founder deck. The founder deck, there's one page that says, we don't give a damn about stake. That's same slide was in our fundraising deck it made lps choke like literally like it's like it's like they thought they were running out of air because to your point and spot on question their fund theory says that you need ownership state because of the math that we just explained right now my thinking is size changes fund theory and i agree state ownership stake matters because math is math but the impact it has decreases when the size is smaller, right? And so I think that to your point on what VC is, we wanted to make sure we had a very supportive and also flexible because we're very small. So you don't want to be caught in the requirements of a large fund, but with the resources of a small. So we wanted to make sure that we had a LP base that basically bought into the model and basically both into our value prop, which is optimizing access over stake. So we're, we're going to offer to LPs is access into Europe's best companies, because this point of not competing, collaborating, and being the in-house VC means we can get into the best companies in Europe and high returns. Because even on a small basis, you can return a smaller fund many more times. So it's like in, investors who want, want that access into Europe's companies and to wanted high returns even on small amounts. Then also we wanted an LP base that was aligned with the founders we work on a back. So Cocoa is back 70, like we have 70% tech founder money. We have 20 founders of unicorns on the platform, mostly European, uh, that backed us. That's the main kind of investor base. And third, and this applies to investors, like co-investors and LPs, so investors into Cocoa, but also investors that I co-invest with into companies. I want to work with people who care because at the end of the day, venture is a tricky, it's a financial asset, but it's a tricky one in the sense that you are investing into people's life projects. 
right? And I want to work with people who care and empathize with that because when you think, and this is something I tell portfolio founders all the time. I actually had this conversation this morning with a founder. I'm like, Cocoa, think about 30 companies. You're one of them. You do well, phenomenal. You don't do well, okay, bad, but it's one out of 30. For you, it's one out of one. And so you want investors who understand that and care about that and are going to care about the fact that even if it's one out of 30 for me, it's one out of one for you. And that to me is like very, very important. And so I think that that's a little bit how we how we kind of structure our, our LPAs and we're very, very happy with it. We couldn't like be, you know, they've been incredibly supportive throughout like uh, all the all the process of, of launching a first fund, which is also not as straightforward as you think it's going to be. And, and yeah, and actually that one learning, I'm talking a lot to founders, but if there are any prospect emerging managers um, here, listening one key learning the same we tell founders about their captive that make sure that you get the right people because you're getting people into your home your family your bed same applies to lps you're gonna need lps at some point even if you think that you're done you are and having a supportive lp base makes the whole difference so be ruthless scrutinizing like who you allow into the fund because the way that they push you challenge you and support you when things get harder is going to be game changing so that also i i can only be grateful (laughs) to to our lps Perfect. And then maybe just a few seconds on how you see Kokoa's future then. So if you're growing as you are supporting more and more founders, where does this all end up? It's a very good question. And to be honest, how I think, because it took to the point also on, on how I look at backing companies and like, there's so much we don't know, right? And, and Cocoa at the end of the day is a small startup. Like it's also a startup, like in a fund, like the product is a fund, but it's a startup. And there's so many uncontrollables. And if you think about it, we raised Cocoa One October 2021. We started deploying in a different world. Like January 2022 was already a different world than October 2021, which is the peak of the market. And so I, I am careful in how I project kind of my plans because I am mindful of what's uncontrollable. The one thing that is my North Star is that the reason I do this every day and what I would consider success is if I can look back five, 10 years from now, whatever the future is in time and look back and see that Cocoa has worked with the best founders in Europe. I think that that is my North Star. The way, like how that looks from a model perspective, it's so unknown, but that's my, so how I see Cocoa in the future is in the captive of Europe's best founders. So not just in the captive, but having built a relationship of trust with them. Amazing. And, you know, you must really get a feel for that entrepreneurial energy at the moment. I think, you know, you just mentioned you started deploying in 2021. Times were very, very different. What kind of vibes are people bringing to the table right now? How do you find the current climate to invest in? What's it like for you out there trying to find new deals and find those amazing new European unicorn founders? So it's a very funny question because, and I asked with one word, when you say, how do you find the climate confusing? 
incredibly confusing because I think we live almost on like a parallel world, right? I think what has happened is that, and this is my explanation, so I know take it all with a pinch of salt, but is that a lot of the funds, Cocoa included, that are being deployed now were raised in a world where money had no cost. Interest rate zero, like peaks of the market, everything. Now they're being deployed in a market where money does have a cost and it's gonna it's looking like it is gonna have cost and where we don't really know what's happening at a macro level and, and there are like you know lots of like geopolitical issues. Like it is an it is a weird time and not in the positive way necessarily in the world overall. And so people are mindful of that, and that is impossible that it doesn't affect you because mm-hmm. you know we're we're people. But at the same time, there's money to deploy. And so what's happening is that it is all concentrating. There's like a flight to safety. So it's all concentrating in a select number of opportunities. When we talk about pre-seed, in a select number of founders with a specific background, right? Or going after a specific market, AI, basically. And so it is a confusing market to navigate because it's not like strong flying, but at the same time, there is money and it's concentrating. So you've got a lot of pre-seed rounds done like at very large rounds at very high valuations because there is competition for that asset, right? And that capital. And so I think I'm finding that a bit tricky um, to, to navigate. Now, on the other hand, on the optimistic, like very optimistic uh, side of things. I think Europe is clearly at an inflection point in terms of quality of talent and quality of capital. And if you see the volume of operators that have seen scale scaling that have been part of companies that are now valued at multi-billion dollar companies in Europe that have seen that growth and that now decide it is their time to be founders, it is incredible. And I think that that's the first time that like Europe completes the loop and it ensures a super high quality uh, founder quality for for the next kind of um, generation companies right and I think that that is very up like very exciting and also the quality of the capital is also very high and so I think that in the long term the trends for it to be optimistic are great in the short term even for Cocoa that doesn't care about ownership stakes I don't care if I if I'm around this 25 million, like, I mean, I care, but like, I can invest. The point is risk-adjusted returns, I think, are dislocated because seed and pre-seed compress. And so like some seed, pre-seeds are pricing at 15 million. I'm not sure that the seeds will price at 45. And so actually, from an investor perspective, like, what's the point of investing at 15 if in 18 months that is going to be at 20 and you're going to have 18 months more of data and they will have burned like 2 million. So I think that that's a little bit how do you navigate this excess of capital that is concentrated in a select number of founders and makes the risk adjusted return a bit difficult to figure out. Uh, but that's a short term dislocation, I think, versus a very positive long term trend. And maybe focusing more on that positive trend, you mentioned kind of the European flywheel effect that we're starting to see from all these amazing unicorn companies. And we know that these companies are super distributed across Europe, right? You're Spanish, you're now based in London. Are there any hubs or geographies that you're particularly focused on exploring more at the moment? Or are you really sticking to those main markets? No, and I I actually, everybody who knows me knows me that I live on a Ryanair flight. Um, (laughs) 
Asia is really not sexy. People are like, oh, jet set. Yeah, really glamorous. I'm like, it's 4 a.m. in Luton and it's raining and I'm outside <laughs> waiting to get into Ryanair. I'm not sure this is jet setting, but still, okay. I'm still happy with it. Um, so basically, very, I do, and I think it's actually one of uh, Europe's strengths, right? The fact that it, like, there's so many kind of um, exciting hubs. So lo- Cocoa is based in London, so natural um, that we do a lot in the UK. We actively cover France and Germany, which means we spend time every month in both France and Germany. Now, for the last year, I've been spending much more time in Stockholm. I find Stockholm super exciting ecosystem. Founders are incredibly strong. As somebody said at a dinner, I'm gonna give credit to Adam from GC. He said the noise to quality ratio like is actually like very low. There's very little noise. The quality is super high. And the flywheel is almost twice, has gone twice in, in, in Sweden, this like unicorn flywheel. So that's even more interesting. And I am starting to spend more time in Copenhagen as an extension, a little bit also um, of this Nordic coverage. And I'm excited about Poland and like Romania and that because I think the strength of the technical talent there is very very strong so yeah that's where i would say i have been spending my time and want to spend more time amazing well that's a very fun note to to end on but maybe we just go with what is your proudest moment um from kokoa or from your career to date would love to hear about you know how you think of your biggest achievements okay so let me start by then i think that my biggest achievements and my proudest moments are yet to come. Uh, this is not to say that. So I've been in venture for eight years. I started Cocoa two and a half years ago. I am very, very, more than proud, very grateful for all that I've been able to, to do and everybody I've been able to work with and all the founders. I'm very proud of every founder that, I, that I'm working with. I still think there's so much to do. Like we're on not even day one. It's like day zero. Um, things are yet to come. And that is actually very exciting because it would be really boring if like, you know, I would already be proud about too many things. So that's yet to come. Uh, And yeah, very excited for what's ahead. There's this phrase that I use a lot, that I end a lot of emails and like presentations and everything on, which is the best is yet to come. And that's very much my guideline every morning. Perfect. I think you have to keep it, have it to keep you going, right? In this job, you should always be chasing more. So I think it's a great mindset. And maybe we'll wrap it up with one very fun one. Cocoa Ventures. Carmen, what is your favorite chocolate? <laughs> you know, that's also the question uh, my husband asked me the first weekend he came to see me in London. And I will uh, tell you my response. Um, I told him my favorite chocolate was Venezuela. 80% and he was like what because he was expecting a brand and I went yeah. for beans and and he now always jokes that he should have run away at that point because like you know <laughs> he was expecting like Milka, Lindt or something and I was like well Venezuela I also like Cuba and he was like what <laughs> and now I will say now uh, probably like and talking about Venezuela and Cuba and like being to bar and responsibly crafted chocolate Anything on Cocoa Runners, and if you guys, and I'm no, I'm not investor, so I, I'm just a happy customer. If you guys haven't checked Cocoa Runners, it's the best thing ever. Spencer and the team have a passion for chocolate that, you know, it's like when we say we want to work with people who care, 
baker and they travel the world looking for the best chocolates and they just curate them for you. So anything he curates, I'm a happy taker. Okay, I feel like this is the hottest tip ever to end on. So Cocoa runners, the best. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I received mine this morning and it's those. <laughs> and again, not paid advertise, like, and I'm not an investor. So I'm just, love. I love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. Carmen, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the pod. Um, I hope everyone listening has enjoyed it and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this special episode on the European VC. If you love our show, join our community by subscribing at eu.vc. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Tactic is the leading forecasting and scenario planning software for venture capital funds. Tactic combines portfolio construction, portfolio management, forecasting, and reporting into a unified platform. Investors are empowered with data-driven insights on fund strategy, reserve allocation, exit planning, and fund performance. Tactic was built using quantitative techniques researched from hundreds of data-driven fund managers and is trusted by over 250 funds globally today. Tactic is a proud sponsor of the first season of the At The Cap Table podcast series. If you'd like to learn more, please check out tactic.io. T-A-C-T-Y-C dot I-O.